Chapter 9 of An Angler's Hours by Hugh Tempest Sheringham. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 9 The Festival of the Green Drake. To the angler who is modest in his desires, the mayfly must ever be somewhat of a fearful joy. There is something uncanny about finding the trout in a well-fished stream, commonly epicurean of taste and cautious of habit, converted in the twinkling of an eye into omnivorous maniacs. And it is small wonder that the insect whose advent causes this remarkable change has sometimes been the object of invective as well as panchiric, for there are many men who prefer a season of moderate, perhaps slight, sport to the crowded hour of glorious life which makes all after-hours so dull and spiritless. I am by no means sure that they are not right. The passing of the mayfly from such a river as the Test is not an unalloyed misfortune. When small fly is plentiful enough to satisfy both angler and fish, a stream is sufficiently blessed and artificial excitements are not required. But there is one aspect of the drake in which his value can hardly be overestimated. Many trout streams in their lower reaches hold a quantity of coarse fish whose influence on the trout is to make them large and few, and, for evil associations corrupt good manners, to render them indifferent to surface food. These waters, in consequence, become quite useless for legitimate fly-fishing, except during the brief carnival of the mayfly. Then and then only has the angler a chance, for no trout, however large or addicted to minnows, can refrain from joining in the prevalent enthusiasm. And so you shall find a fish of five pounds feeding as eagerly as any troutling. Aye, and catch him too if luck is with you, and then your happiness should be complete. Is not a great fish like that, taken fairly with the fly, worth a basket filled never so full with pounders? And are there not on the records of most streams inscribed the tales of trout taken with a mayfly of five, six, and even more, incredibly more, pounds? I know one small stream where on the same evening a fisherman caught a brace of trout weighing seven and a quarter and nine and a half pounds respectively. To this day I cannot think of that brace without awe. Nor, since the tale was told to me, can I bring myself to fish for pounders with the mayfly, even though it prove, as it too often does, that I have dropped the substance to grasp the shadow. I do not regret the choice. The substance could not, at most, have exceeded three pounds. Of the possibilities of the shadow I have spoken, and so I must ask the reader to turn his back firmly upon this pretty stream that invites him to linger. It is indeed full of trout. As we look down on the bridge we can see one or two lying motionless among the green ribbons of weed, and a few yards away, under that alder bush, another is rising quietly from time to time, feeding probably on the fly that takes its name from the bush. 
for in early june nature is lavish of her insect life and the alder and the mayfly often vie with each other for the notice of the fish and it may chance that the angler will kill even more with the modest brown fly than with the drake itself it is hard to leave a rising trout without giving him something to rise for as the pugnacious urban idiom hath it but let the reader only be patient for another half-mile of this dusty high-road and i will warrant he shall see something better worth the seeing the trout in this little tributary are but midgets attaining only to some poultry two pounds or so not a bad size of course taking all in all and very fitting for small dry-fly work but in the fleeting carnival of the drake not worthy of our steel no we will leave them behind us and on after the shadow the london road stretches out white and straight it is past midday and the sun is coming to its hottest you can see that this is the most blinding half-mile of weariness and dust in the world a low hedge is on either side and not a tree casts a morsel of shade to walk on for ever and ever on just such a path as this would be a very fitting judgment for the wicked add to the picture yon turbulent machine that comes roaring by clad in a nimbus of dust cloud and imagine the wicked being compelled to jump out of its way for ever and ever and you began to doubt whether there be any wicked enough for so excessive an arrangement we certainly are not wicked enough and we may regard the glare and the dust of the motor-car merely as a kind of purgatory intended to fit us for the paradise to come ecce genua caele we turn to the right go round a corner and are at once in the deep cool shadows of a perfect english lane high banks fern-clad and mossy crowned with still higher hedges of hazel alder and thorn which almost meet overhead make of the sun but a luminous atmosphere an oak here and there spreads out massive limbs protectingly casting a deep shade the wild rose is in full bloom and stands out against the darker green shyly conscious of its beauty surely it is the most tantalizing of blossoms so fragile and so exquisite the dainty rogue in porcelain of the hedgerow a quarter of a mile of this easiest of travelling and we are at a gate on the right hand by two haystacks it has been newly tarred and one may neither climb nor touch what is to be done a short field away we can see the small stream that skirts the water-meadows and beyond the vivid green which shows the richness of grass intersected by countless rills of clearest crystal we can see the river itself gleaming in the sunlight who cares for a little tar but soft let instinct work are we not descended from the ape and has not the ape four hands tar will not hurt our heavy boots and the gate may be so lifted bracing the muscles of the thigh until it is fairly open and no harm done 
and it may be shut after the same fashion. Then we wade knee-deep through the long grass towards the little black bridge that crosses the brook into the water-meadow. No, there is no reason why we should not pause here a while, and the elm just shades the bridge nicely. The brook is rather weedy, but observe the purity of the water, the gold of the gravel, and the silver of the sand in that little channel between the streamers. It is the ideal water for a few fat trout. There is food in abundance, and there are quiet corners under willows separated by little merry stickles, in which an honest fish may lie and capture every floating morsel without undue exertion, adding to his weight like some dignified alderman whose active days are long past. These pampered fish are not, it is true, numerous, and they are, like the alderman, epicurean of taste, but they cannot resist the mayfly any more than the others, and I calculate on a brace out of this little stream before the evening. But at present we should do little good by disturbing it, as the fly has not began to hatch out. So we will cross the meadow and get to the river. From here it looks easy enough to do so, but in reality the path is devious and difficult to find amid the long grass. These water-meadows are, in truth, a collection of little islands, cut off from each other and the world by innumerable tiny streams, feeders of the brook we have just left. Some of them are but a foot wide, and they are all at least two feet deep, and the man who, eager to be at his fishing, hastens heedless after his nose, will get very wet. I know, because I suffered the like on my first visit. But there is a dry and safe path, and across the more considerable drains there are little bridges. And so, with torturous steps, we reach the river with dry feet. Sometimes, though, when the river runs higher than its wont, even this serpentine path is delusive. The rills gain in size from their parents' overflow, and in turn spread out over the meadows until there are two or three inches of water through which one must splash. Hence some of our fishermen wear long rubber boots, though they are not comfortable and hardly necessary. Stout shooting boots kept carefully greased are enough to defy the damp. And now let us sit down on the famous black fence and mop our brows, for it has been no small walk from the station. Moreover, it will be as well to investigate the luncheon that has been packed for us in the creel. Breakfast is a thing of the ancient past, and there are fifty good miles between us and the great city in which we ate it. If a man who has come all that distance does not deserve his luncheon, nobody does. And while we eat, we can observe. I have said that this fence on which we sit is famous. It has seen the capture of many a fine fish. The river here turns a corner after a rapid shallow, and forms a deep pool with a good eddy under either bank. It is at the tail of the shallow that the big trout are almost always caught. 
in the pool itself there are generally some heavy pike in the winter fish of from twelve pounds upwards to say nothing of enormous chud and barbel for this tributary of the thames is undutiful enough to surpass its parent in the general size and quality of its fish it is probably the most prolific water in england but of course with all the coarse fish you must not expect the trout to be very numerous if we get one at all i shall be satisfied just as we have made an end of eating and are filling our pipes we see the first fly there he sails downstream drifting at first with motionless wings upright now he begins to flutter and we watch curiously to see if he will escape to the ampler air or become food for fishes it is the unexpected that happens and a swallow skims over the surface and picks him daintily off just as a belated dace dashes at him from below the swallows in truth probably devour more flies than do the fish two or three more flies struggle up to the surface at intervals one of them is taken by a fish under the opposite bank probably a dace for it rose with much fuss and splash it is time to put up the rod we use no cobweb and gossamer tackle here we have to be able to throw a long line and must be ready for big fish and so the split cane rod is a powerful weapon the real line is heavy and the cast tapers only to the finest undrawn as the catalogues have it to the uninitiated rather mysteriously perhaps drawn gut is gut which has been passed through steel plates filed down as it were until it has lost its original stoutness it can be made extremely fine by the process but naturally it loses most of its strength undrawn gut is three times as strong as drawn gut of the same thickness the real line has been carefully rubbed with a preparation to make it float and the cast has been in the damping box all morning so all we have to do is to put on a fly and we are ready the fly box is filled with marvellous patterns of the drake with wings of all sizes and colours the collection has accumulated for years and we do not really need more than about four varieties and of the four this one with the rather small grey wings and brown body with gold twist is my favourite if i cannot succeed with this i sometimes put on that little buttercup yellow it is not in the least like any drake that has ever left the mud but the trout sometimes take it well then there is the spent gnat a curious lopsided thing that floats with its wings flat on the water i usually put that on in the evening when the fish are feeding quietly close under the banks on the myriad of dead flies that come floating down the fourth pattern is the straddle bug really i believe supposed to be an imitation of the sub imago as it is in the act of emerging from its case in effect it makes a very good hackle mayfly and is at times killing now we are ready and we must keep our eyes wide and seriously open for a rising fish what is that right opposite a long shadow lying close under the clay bank 
in a little bay. It is a fish, sure enough, but at this distance of nearly twenty yards I cannot determine its kind. Yes, see, it has just lifted up a lazy head and taken some small fly. It is a long cast, but easily within the reach of this rod, so the line sweeps backwards and forwards until the length is judged to have been obtained. A very happy chance makes the grey wings alight on the bank a couple of feet above the fish. The slightest of hints from the wrist coaxes the fly onto the water, and it floats down exactly as one could wish. As one could wish, too, it is taken, and another hint from the elbow this time, for it is ill-striking from the wrist with a split-cane rod, as what the learned call its resiliency, makes it a case of one step forward and two back, and so it pays better simply to tighten on the fish. Drives the hook home, and the rod bends in answer to a rush for the deep water. But whatever it be that we have hooked, it is certainly not a trout. There is no dash about the contest, and after a very short resistance a dead weight allows itself to be drawn towards us. As I thought, it is only a chub, and not a very large one, two pounds and a half may be his weight, but he is not worth the weighing, so he may go in again. Had it been a month later, he would not have submitted so tamely, but now he is hardly recovered from the spawning season. The coming ten days will make a new fish of him, and when he is heartened up with good cheer, he will be worth fishing for, or anyhow, his heavier brethren will. You see that row of piles sticking out of the river, under our own bank? It is round them that you will find the biggest chub. Last season a man took one of full five pounds there with the mayfly, and lost another even heavier. The flies are coming down faster now, and the dace are beginning to rise freely. There we've hooked one. Mark how he fights. He has the cunning of the grayling, combined with the dash of the trout, but on this tackle we have him safe. We will weigh him. Three quarters of a pound by the balance, a very creditable weight for his species. He shall be kept, for dace come into season here on this day, and a few of these big ones look very well, lying on the long grass in the creel. I wish they rose as well to small flies as they do to the drake. Very seldom can you get such dace as this with the black gnat, though it does come about now and then, generally rather late in the season. Last September, on this same stream, rather higher up, a man caught some beautiful dace while grayling fishing. Three of them were over a pound, but such good fortune has never attended me here. Just as we are fastening the lid of the creel, a great plop causes us to start, and we turn our eyes to the river just in time to see the great swirl where some monster rose at the extreme corner of the eddy. That fish is an old, I cannot say friend, for I have never actually seen him, but at any rate an old acquaintance. He was here last year in the same spot, 
and rising in the same tumultuous fashion. Oddly enough, he only rose about once in every two hours, always with the same heavy plunge. No efforts of mine, and I spent the greater part of a day over him, could persuade him to come up to an artificial fly. I was convinced at the time that he was a colossal trout, but the interval of a year has given time for calm deliberation, and now I think he is probably a pike. That would explain his desultory behaviour, for a pike, though he will rise now and then at a mayfly, possibly out of the feeling for good fellowship that makes so many men drink whisky, will not turn to and make a meal of it after he has reached any considerable size. So we will not waste any more good exertion on him. But there is the rise of an indubitable trout out in the middle of the rapid above the pool. It is difficult to cover the spot, because there is a thick band of weeds between us and it, and the line catching thereon will make the fly drag at once. There are two ways of getting over the problem. One is to go up above the fish and float the fly down to him, a method to which there are the objections that you must stake your all on the one cast, as in lifting the line off the water you are bound to frighten him, and that if you should get a rise you are very likely to miss him. The other method is to make what I may call a false cast from below. That is to say, you get out considerably more line than you require to reach the spot, and check it in its outward flight, so that some yards fall in clumsy coils outside the weeds. It is not pretty to see, but it at least allows the fly to float down for a yard or two, unchecked, and you can repeat the cast several times. The first effort sends the fly rather too far, and it is a good yard on the wrong side of the trout. In calm water the gut floating over his head would most certainly put him down, but in this swift glide perhaps it will not affect him. No, it is all right, he has just risen again. Now the fly has fallen just where it should, about a foot above him and as it reaches him he comes at it with a splash. But he has not taken it. He was suspicious, and merely tried to drown it. This is a common trick of these large trout. Probably they are animated by the zeal of the witch-finder. If your witch swims, she is a very monstrous black witch. If she sinks, she is no witch, it is true, but none the more is she any wife for Caesar, now that suspicion has rested on her. And so it is, no doubt, with the fish and the mayfly. We shall not tempt him again for a while, so let us stroll downstream, picking up a dace or two and looking for another trout. It is not yet really time for them, with this afternoon sun still so fierce. When it has dropped a little, say, after six o'clock, we will go to work seriously. At the next fence there is a row of willows which spread a cool belt of shade right across the meadow from the river to the brook which we first crossed. 
and under the willows runs one of the main ditches that connect the two. This ditch gives in miniature the whole history of its parent river. At our feet it is but the tiniest rill, a foot wide and an inch or two deep, babbling softly over its miniature bed of gravel. A few yards lower, another rill, even smaller, joins it joyously, adding its atom of importance. Another, and yet another, flow in, swelling the original rill and increasing its responsibilities until it measures a full yard from bank to bank. Then we find another stream of equal volume joining strength, sweeping in with all the dignity that one full-grown river displays when it merges its identity with another, eddying round its bank and marking the conflict of two currents with a little whirlpool. Henceforth our ditch is to be taken respectfully. It flows with the strong, even glide of the chalk stream, and is spanned with two plank bridges. It is not wholly that I might point out these facts that we have followed the ditch, or wholly that we might enjoy the shade. The mayfly is here too, and I doubt not a good trout or so with him. Yes, there, under the third willow from which we are standing, is a rise, a feeding fish, sure enough. There were but three mayflies near him, and he has taken them all. Now we will endeavour to take him. We can safely advance fairly close, as he lies under our own bank, and kneeling in the shade of the tree above him, we peep cautiously round the willow trunk. Another determined rise shows us exactly where he is, not six yards away. With an underhand cast the fly is made to drop onto the water a little above him, and he comes at it nobly. In a second he is dashing away downstream, and the angler is holding on like grim death. We cannot follow because of the trees, and we must test the efficiency of trustworthy tackle and passive resistance. Twenty yards below is one of the plank bridges, and if he gets to that he is a free trout, for there are piles under it. But no, he is turned just in time, and now we can compel him slowly to come back. The greatest danger is over, and, though he is by no means beaten, he will never reach the bridge now. And so, after a minute and a half of sudden leaping and short rushes, he is at last in the net, a pleasant and substantial weight for the willing hand. Two pounds is what the balance makes of him, and we are pleased, for we had scarcely thought him so much. He does credit to the ditch, and excellently supports the theory that in a country where trout are at all, no piece of running water should be despised, for the fish loves a small stream and grows fat in it. When the mayfly is out on these water meadows, you may find a trout feeding in the tiniest rill, almost on the grass, in fact, and no small fry, mind you, but just such another as this is. Our capture has disturbed the ditch too much at this point, 
so we will go on down to the bridge that so nearly was our undoing there is a rise some yards below and we proceed very much as before except that we have now no friendly tree to cover us and must kneel afar off the fish takes the fly as well as could be but somehow he is missed odd there he is rising again the moment after at a real fly we try again and he takes the artificial fearlessly and yet is missed the second time but the third time we strike quickly and hook something of no great size it proves to be a dace of half a pound rather a disappointment we were sure it must be a trout there are not many dace in these ditches but a few come up from the brook after the mayfly and a small pike or two come up after them the brook joins the river some three miles lower down and though it mostly contains trout a few coarse fish inevitably make their way into its deeper holes the ditch runs into the brook at a point where several trees make it impossible to throw a fly from this side and there is generally a good trout lying there quite conscious no doubt of being unassailable below the trees is the little brick bridge leading across the brook to the farmyard and below the bridge is what is known as the pool it deserves its name for it is an ideal trout stream pool the current flows rather swiftly through the single arch of the bridge and loses itself in the still depths there are a good eight feet of water here in the deepest part and though the pool is but fifteen yards or so in length and eight in breadth there seems to be an inexhaustible supply of fish in it it is not long since a pike of eight pounds was caught here and there is always a shoal of fine roach a few perch and one or two big grayling all these besides the trout last year i was watching an angler fishing here casting his mayfly right under the bridge from below more in hope than in expectation of a rise he had just turned round to say something of no importance when i saw an enormous trout rise up steadily and absorb his fly i informed him of the circumstance but it was too late and the five pounder is i hope still there unless the otter has slain him there is a legendary otter who has his home somewhere under the bridge but he moves in secrecy and does his fell deeds under fitting cover of darkness the keeper claims to have seen him once out of range but the only trustworthy evidence of his existence is the occasional discovery of one of our best trout on the bank with the pound of flesh taken duly from his spotted back and it is probable that he does not live here distance is nothing to an otter a few miles of travelling give him an appetite and improve his taste for the finer trout let it be said that i do not agree with the theory held by the animal's apologists that he would as leaf dine off charb or pike as trout it is not in the least true for the otter knows the value and flavour of trout as well as we do and if he can get one he passes all coarse fish by in contempt in so small a stream as this 
he can do a deal of mischief, and does. I would not see him wantonly butchered on big rivers, where there is room for him and the angler too, but his depredations here recall the story of the ewe-lamb, for the trout are none too numerous. Our efforts to get a rise out of the big one have not been a success, though we have made a very good pretense of not looking at our fly as it floats out from under the bridge. So we will move on. About fifty yards downstream there is a drinking place for the cattle, and the hurdles enclosing it make a nice ripple in which there is always a trout. We will fetch a compass out into the meadow, coming back to the bank some distance below the rough water. Yes, there is a rise, right at the head of it, close to the hurdle. We advance, stooping to within casting distance, and the attempt is made on one knee. The fly is taken fearlessly, and in a second we are running downstream, winding in line as we go, for the fish is hurrying in the same direction, and we must keep below him. But he does not run very far, nor does he fight very long, and soon we have him in the net, a long lean fish of a pound and three quarters, not in bad condition exactly, but a trout of the Cassio type, which no feeding would ever make plump. One meets with such fish in all rivers in all seasons. Probably they are dyspeptics, who eat the things they like rather than the things they should. But, lean or no, he makes a brace of trout in the basket, and is welcome. The exertion of his capture has made us realise the heat again, for in London we are not used to running. Tea would be no bad celebration of our good fortune, and it will not really be waste of time. A man fishes twice as well on a hot day, when he has had his tea, and after all we can spare half an hour from one pleasure, if we devote it to another, and without doubt it is a keen pleasure to sit in the little parlour at the farm, looking out of the open window into the little garden, and enjoying the scent of the wallflowers, remembering not too obtrusively the while how odious the great city must be at this moment, with its airless roads, glaring pavements, and disconsolate rows of black skeletons that are set up by way of adornment and humorlessly called plain trees. And the hot tea is itself a blessed thing, the best of the homeopathic cures, and far more cooling in the long run than ice. And so let us return to the river refreshed and strengthened now you can see what a mayfly rise really means. The insect is floating downstream, literally in thousands. He is fluttering over it. He is dancing up and down the bank. He is clinging to every twig and blade of grass. He has settled, several of him, on our hats, and one is on the middle joint of the rod. The whole riverside is an astonishing carnival of life. The swallows are flying low in short circles, and eating their fill. I always think the fly is wasted on them, for it does not make them grow very fat and heavy like trout. 
and the water itself is simply boiling with fish of all shapes and sizes. And there is so much fly that close under the bank the surface of the water is covered with spent gnats, which float down unregarded and uneaten. And now our difficulty is to persuade a fish to rise at the artificial fly when the real insect is at each cast to be seen within a few inches of it. However, we get one or two good dace and return a brace of chub within a few yards of each other, though we cannot persuade a trout to rise. We will now work upstream again with the black fence as our objective, for there, if anywhere, we shall meet with that monster of our desires. All the way along the meadow between us and it, heavy fish are rising, chub for the most part with a trout or two under the opposite bank. But at our fly they will not look, though we cast it never so cunningly. Why should they when the deception must be so patent? The real insect floats down on its wings close together like one wing or the mainsail of a cutter, while the clumsy artificial spreads its wings apart. I believe there is a theory that the artificial is intended to represent the real fly at the moment when it begins to flutter, which is, it is said, the moment when the fish seizes it. But, so far as my observation has gone, it seems to me that a trout rises when he sees the fly, flutter or no flutter. One season I had some flies tied with a single upright wing, but they would not float. The straddle-bug, however, sometimes answers this purpose, and is always worth a trial. And now we are at the fence again. The low western sun is right in our faces here but our hats have broad brims, which save us from being dazzled into inaction. Now we can see a trout almost in the same spot where we caught the first chub. He is within two inches of the surface, just raising his head lazily from time to time, and taking a fly as it floats over him. But he won't raise his head for hours, though we try several patterns, including a large wickham, a fly which sometimes succeeds with mayflies all around it, and a full half-hour is vainly spent in tempting him. Evidently he is not for us, and we must try another. In the shallow ripple under our own bank, some twenty yards above us, there is a quiet rise, which is probably due to a trout for in the evening they leave the deep water for the shallow feeding-grounds. This ripple has a character of its own. It is within the belt of weeds, and is formed by a little mound of gravel just below a drain that leaves the river on the right. The fly alights on the water just opposite the drain, hesitates for a moment at the parting of the streams, and then, yielding to the main current, hurries down on the dancing wavelets. But not far, for a fish rises just where the gravel begins to shelve towards the deeper water. There is no mistake about it this time, and almost before we can realise that we have hooked a fish, he has bolted downstream, and we are clambering over the fence. 
Fortunately, he seems well hooked, but he is very strong, and looks like running for a mile. This, however, cannot be. At any rate, we cannot run with him, for twenty yards below the fence is a drain, and the bridge is well back in the meadow. When we reach this, we must hold on and hope for the best. There are a few seconds of desperate opposition when this policy is put into effect, but all holds, and he changes his mind, and now he is running upstream again, and line must be gathered in hand over hand. We hope he will now choose to fight it out in the deep water above the fence, and so it proves. He bores sulkily about in the pool, occasionally making another desperate rush, and once jumping full two feet out of the water. But his efforts get less and less violent, until at last we can draw him over the landing net fairly beaten. And a very excellent capture he is. All four pounds, I warrant you. No, three pounds and seven ounces only? Oh, well, he fought as well as if he had been four. Yes, perhaps I am a little excited, but you will grant it was such a battle, and is such a fish as you shall not meet every day. We will sit down on the fence again to steady our nerves. The most seasoned hand trembles a little after catching a big trout, and the stoutest heart must flutter in the moment of triumph. We have done very well. Three nice trout and seven fine dace are a good enough basket for any respectable person, and we shall envy no man's sport this day, unless, of course, he happens to have caught a trout weighing more than three pounds seven ounces. Now our pipes are lighted, if you come with me, I will show you a thing. We must go to the top of the meadow, to yon clump of willows. Here you see a floodgate through which a narrow stream flows out of the river into the meadows, making music in the deepening twilight. We cross over the gate and follow the little stream for a few yards until it divides, one branch continuing on its course the other turning sharp to the left, and running through an underground channel into a little round pool, hardly more than two yards in diameter and eighteen inches deep. Hence the stream flows softly under the hedge until it joins the brook we have visited already. Tiny as this pool is, I know there is a large trout in it. It was thought better to await the dark before attacking him, for the water is crystal clear and there is no cover. A spent gnat was put on while we were sitting on the fence, and now all we have to do is to flick it onto the water. Instantly there is a heavy plunge, and the rod is bent almost double. I have him! No, by heaven, he has us! He has bolted straight down the little stream and is safe under some roots, and we are a fly the poorer. Ah, well, it is useless to repine. Perhaps two three-pounders in a day would have been greater fortune than we deserve. And so let us go and seek our country supper, with appetite sharpened by success, and after lay our heads on country pillows, with fair hopes for the morrow. End of chapter 9